It's Tuesday the 1st of March, 1949, in Crawley, West Sussex, 28 miles south of London. Behind a small storeroom in Leopold Road, a bleak scrapyard is littered with rusting spare parts, industrial waste and unspecified debris. Sickly-looking weeds push their way through the rocky soil, life asserting itself even in the most unpromising conditions. A bald, slightly built man, immaculately dressed in a pinstripe suit, draws himself up to survey the scene. He tries to ignore the uniformed police officers and plain-clothed detectives milling about aimlessly. The mood is somber, almost dazed, as if the police don't quite know what they're looking for. The man breathes in sharply, detecting a pungent chemical smell in the unwholesome air. He narrows his eyes thoughtfully, his expression deadly serious, as he concentrates on the ground, scanning it slowly, section by section. This is Dr. Keith Simpson, home office pathologist, and in the 15 years he has been working with Scotland Yard, this has to be one of the strangest cases he has ever encountered. As a pathologist, it is normally Dr. Simpson's job to conduct a post-mortem examination on a suspected murder victim. He searches the surface of the body for any external signs of violence, gunshot wounds, contusions, strangulation marks, blunt force trauma, knife incisions. Then he opens the body up, removing the vital organs to examine them for any signs of foul play. Dr. Simpson's speciality is forensic dentistry, which he uses to identify both victims and murderers. For example, in the famous Gorringe case a year ago, he was able to prove that the bite marks on a dead woman's breast were put there by her husband. What makes today's case different is that there isn't a body for him to exercise his unique skills on. The pathologist sees Detective Chief Inspector Guy Mahone of Scotland Yard approaching him. Mahone is the officer who called him in earlier that morning, having just taken over command of the case. The ashen-faced Mahone looks more than a little nervous. Dr. Simpson wonders if he's feeling out of his depth. It's a difficult case to land on his desk when he's so new to the job. Mahone has only been in his post for a few months. But DCI Mahone doesn't have anything to worry about, thinks Dr. Simpson, as long as he remembers the number one rule. Just let those who know what they're doing get on with it. Besides, a case like this is a team effort. It may be led by Scotland Yard, but it's a coordinated investigation with officers from the Metropolitan Police working alongside the local Sussex Constabulary. The two forces are involved because the suspect and alleged victim are from London, while the crime is believed to have been committed here in West Sussex. From what he's been told, there's the possibility of other murders too, which means it could blow up into a huge case. No wonder DCI Mahone is feeling the pressure. Mahone raises an eyebrow inquiringly. Dr. Simpson doesn't respond. When he's got something, the chief inspector will be the first to know. He looks past Mahone, his gaze seeking out the far end of the yard, where he notices a thick yellow sludge saturating the ground. 
Dr. Simpson picks up his murder bag and walks over, followed by a suddenly eager DCI Mahone. The sludge-soaked ground is littered with pebbles. The pathologist thinks about what Mahone has told him about the alleged victim, a 69-year-old woman somewhat overweight. Given her sex, age and body type, Dr. Simpson has in mind a particular medical condition that is possible she was suffering from. He puts on a pair of protective rubber gloves and crouches down before picking up a small, odd-looking stone. It stands out from the pebbles around it because it has flat sides that appear to be highly polished, as if, perhaps, they've just been cleaned in acid. He holds it up to the detective. What's that? DCI Mahone wants to know. Gallstone is Dr. Simpson's answer. He may not have found the victim's body, but he's found the next best thing. Proof that there was a body and that someone has tried to destroy it. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Now the search for evidence at Leopold Road picks up a gear. Dr. Simpson finds a clump of what appears to be burnt animal fat. He probes it delicately with a chemist's glass rod, meeting solid resistance inside. He pulls the grease away, revealing a mass of partially dissolved bones. Encouraged by Dr. Simpson's discoveries, DCI Mahone also scours the yard for clues. At the base of a dead tree stump, a rectangle of red plastic jumps out at him. It's the remains of a woman's handbag, badly damaged and falling apart. 
DCI Mahone then calls Dr. Simpson over to help him open a large green oil drum that has been discarded in the toxic looking mud. They carefully remove the lid, releasing a strong chemical smell. DCI Mahone shines his torch in, holding his breath while he peers inside. The fumes bring tears to his eyes, but he can see a small metal object in the noxious yellow slime at the bottom of the barrel. Mahone has a good idea what it is, but he asks Dr. Simpson to confirm his suspicion. The pathologist agrees. It's a hairpin. More than that, it's also a possible sign that the missing woman was once here, inside this drum. A sense of purpose settles on the police now, as Dr. Simpson supervises them in gathering and preserving evidence. He wants everything taken back to the forensic science lab at Scotland Yard for analysis. That includes the oil drum and the handbag, and also the sludge. They pack the top three inches of the sludge-permeated soil into wooden crates for transporting, about six cubic feet in all. While that's going on, DCI Mahone and Dr. Simpson take a look inside the storeroom. A powerful chemical smell hits them as they walk through the door. The interior is gloomy and cold, with weak daylight seeping in through two filthy windows over a workbench. As Dr. Simpson squints at the grubby, whitewashed walls, he notices some faint, rust-coloured stains between the two windows. To his experienced eye, they look like bloodstains. From the spatter pattern, he tries to reconstruct how they might have got there. He imagines someone standing in front of the workbench, facing the wall, and then a gun being fired at close range into the back of their head. Now he turns his attention to the workbench itself. There are a number of items on it, including a gas mask left over from the war, elbow-length rubber gloves, a butcher's-style apron covered in dubious stains, and a rubber Macintosh. There's also a stirrup pump. On the floor near the bench are three large glass containers designed for holding chemicals. Carboys, as they are known. Two of them still have liquid in them. According to the labels, concentrated sulfuric acid. Dr. Simpson feels a shiver convulse his whole body. It isn't just the lack of heating in the storeroom. He suddenly has a clear vision of what happened in this grim place and it chills him to the bone. This is where she was killed. More than that, this is where her body was dissolved in acid until it turned into a murky sludge. Dr. Simpson is fond of saying that it was his squeamishness that took him into pathology. He really doesn't like being around sick and dying people. He can't stand all the mess and discomfort. He's not good with the pain and suffering of the living. He much prefers the quiet, uncomplaining dead. The gallstone, bones, handbag and hairpin are all that remain of a woman called Mrs. Olive Durand Deacon, a well-to-do widow who was living in comfortable retirement at the Onslow Court Hotel in the prosperous London neighbourhood of South Kensington. 
A disappearance was reported to the Chelsea police station on Sunday, February the 20th, by two people claiming to be her friends, Mrs. Constance Lane and Mr. John George Haig. Both are fellow residents of the Onslow Court Hotel. The hotel seems to be run as a kind of upmarket retirement home. There's a high proportion of elderly permanent guests, most of them wealthy ladies like Mrs. Lane and Mrs. Durand Deacon. Mr. Haig, in his late 30s, is significantly younger. On the afternoon that they report their friend missing, the job of taking their statement falls to Sergeant Alexandra Lamborn. At this time, women police officers are still relatively rare, although the Second World War had seen a slight increase in numbers with so many men away fighting. Perhaps her male colleagues don't take the case seriously, which is why they are happy for her to deal with it. People go missing all the time. In 1948 alone, 241 missing persons were reported, around 90% of whom were later accounted for. Elderly people, if they're suffering from dementia, may get confused and wander off. In most cases, the missing person turns up a few days later. Even the doyen of detective fiction, Agatha Christie, once disappeared for 11 days. The police men write it off as female hysteria. But Sergeant Lamborn isn't so quick to dismiss Mrs. Lane. The old woman's concern for her friend is clearly genuine. According to Mrs. Lane, she first noticed her friend was missing when she failed to turn up for dinner on the evening of Friday the 18th of February. Next morning, Mrs. Durand Deacon didn't appear at breakfast either. So Mrs. Lane went up to room 115 and knocked on her friend's door. Receiving no answer, she asked one of the chambermaids to open the room. The bed had not been slept in. Mrs. Lane does most of the talking, with Haig chipping in now and then. As for Haig, Sergeant Lamborn later makes this observation. Apart from the fact that I do not like the man Haig, with his mannerisms, I have a sense that he is a wrong'un, and that there may be a case behind the whole business. Her superiors put it down to her woman's intuition, but really it's the sound instinct of a good cop. What she picks up on is Haig's glibness. He comes into the station smiling and can't stop himself cracking jokes at inappropriate moments. It doesn't go down well with Mrs. Lane, who clearly can't stand him. Sergeant Lamborn reassures Mrs. Lane that everything will be done to find her friend. When the pair have left, Sergeant Lamborn shares her suspicions with the senior detective at the station, Detective Inspector Shelley Symes, head of CID for West London. She asks Symes if they can run a record check on Haig. Today, in the 21st century, it's a simple matter for any police station to access anyone's criminal records through the police's computerized database. In the pre-digital age, all the criminal records for the whole country were held centrally in paper form at the Criminal Record Office at New Scotland Yard, once described as a national registry of crimes and a who's who of their perpetrators. Prompted by Sergeant Lamborn's concerns, D.I. Symes contacts Scotland Yard with Haig's name, 
and puts in a request for his file, if it exists. The next day, Monday, February the 20th, Sergeant Lamborn is back on the case. She phones around local hospitals and ambulance depots, but draws a blank. Lamborn releases a description of Mrs. Durand Deacon to the newspapers. Born 1880, widow, five feet nine inches, stout build, complexion fresh, straight nose, top denture, probably lower as well. The description itemizes the jewelry that she was wearing on the day she disappeared. A gold wedding ring dressed with diamonds, a sapphire and diamond engagement ring, an emerald and diamond clasp, a double row necklace of cultured pearls and pearl stud earrings. It also mentions her black Persian lamb coat and a red box-type plastic handbag. It ends with a standard call for anyone to come forward if they have seen the missing woman. Something about the case has got under Sergeant Lamborn's skin. It's that man, Haig, with his flashy suit, slick hair and artificial charm. To put it bluntly, he creeps her out. She decides she can't just sit and wait for Haig's file to come in. She gets on her bike and cycles round to the Onslow Court Hotel to do a bit of good old-fashioned sleuthing. Located on Queen's Gate, a fashionable street in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, the five-storey building had been converted into a hotel out of five adjoining houses back in the 1920s. It's a highly desirable address, well-placed for some of London's prime attractions, including the Royal Albert Hall, Kensington Gardens and the Natural History Museum. With its impressive Victorian exterior, the Onslow Court projects good taste and understated elegance. Sergeant Lamborn chains her bike to the railings and hurries up the steps, eager to get on with her inquiries. Inside the lobby, the Art Deco furnishings from another age give a reassuring air of wealth and good manners. The hotel's well-to-do guests, mostly elderly women, sit at tables, either reading their morning papers or chatting in small groups. This is not one of those hotels where everyone is a stranger to each other. There's more of the feel of a club, or even a large extended family. Coffee cups chink, smiling staff bustle around making sure everyone has what they need. The conversation is muted and polite, though the uniformed Sergeant Lamborn picks up an edge of excitement at her own entrance. Heads turn in her direction. She has no doubt that the topic on everyone's lips is the disappearance of Mrs. Durand Deacon. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Sergeant Lamborn makes straight for the reception and asks to speak to the manager, who turns out to be a prim, matronly woman named Alicia Robbie. Miss Robbie invites the policewoman into her office, away from the prying eyes and ears of the guests. 
Lamborn starts by asking Miss Robbie about Mrs. Durand Deacon, whom the manager describes as the perfect guest. She was popular with everyone, guests and staff alike, and led a very active life, visiting museums and galleries, enjoying concerts and taking a leading role in a literary society. Most significantly, she describes Durand Deacon as a woman of very regular habits, saying that she rarely stayed away from the hotel, but if she did, she always notified the management in advance. So it's not like her to suddenly go missing. Definitely not. Sergeant Lamborn then asks Miss Robbie about John Haig's relationship with the missing woman. The manager concedes that they were friends. They had tables next to each other in the dining room. The pair shared an interest in music, and she'd heard a rumor that they were going into business together. There's something about Robbie's body language as she speaks about Haig. It's clear to Sergeant Lamborn that she can't stand the man. Obviously, Haig's charm doesn't work on everyone. Lamborn decides to probe, asking Robbie if she's ever had any issues with Haig. Robbie purses her lips and confides that recently Haig had got behind with his bills. It came to a head around the beginning of February, with Haig owing the hotel over £32. That's just over a month's salary on the national average wage. Robbie had sent her head bookkeeper up to his room to deliver an ultimatum. Either pay up or move out. A couple of weeks went by. Eventually, and unexpectedly, Haig paid his bill in full. When was this? Lamborn wants to know. Miss Robbie checks her records. Friday the 18th of February. The day Constance Lane first noticed her friend was missing. After interviewing the manager, Sergeant Lamborn tracks down Mrs. Lane for another chat, this time without John Haig standing over her shoulder. Anxiety has taken its toll on the elderly woman. She seems even smaller now than she did at the station. Judging from the dark rings beneath her bloodshot, dewy eyes, she obviously hasn't been sleeping well. She looks up at the policewoman with a fearful expression, as if expecting bad news. Lamborn smiles encouragingly, even though she herself is already fearing the worst. She tries to keep her voice calm and reassuring as she asks Mrs. Lane to clarify her friend's movements on the Friday she went missing. Mrs. Lane remembers it well because, to be frank, she had a bad feeling about it from the start. In the morning, Mrs. Durand Deacon had told her that she was planning to visit Haig's engineering works in Crawley. Mrs. Lane repeats what the manager said about the two of them going into business together. She didn't know what he was up to, but she didn't want Mrs. Durand Deacon to get involved with him. Mrs. Lane smiles fondly as she remembers her friend. She tells Sergeant Lamborn that in her youth, Mrs. Durand Deacon had been a suffragette once dining with Mrs. Pankhurst herself. She was one of the militant ones, in fact, and had even got into trouble for smashing shop windows in a protest. Mrs. Lane lets out a wistful chuckle. Sergeant Lamborn gets Mrs. Lane back to the day in question. The old lady's eyes narrow in suspicion as she remembers. Apparently, 
Haig was due to pick Mrs. Durand Deacon up in his car, a sporty Elvis model that was his pride and joy, and then drive them both down to Sussex. Mrs. Durand Deacon didn't turn up at the agreed time, so he drove to Crawley on his own. That's what Haig told her, anyhow. Mrs. Lane looks the policewoman straight in the eye, as if to see what she thinks of that. But Sergeant Lane is interested to know what she thinks. Mrs. Lane frowns. She knows from Miss Robbie that Haig came back to the hotel that evening, the evening of the 18th. But he left it till the next morning at breakfast to ask her if she had heard from Mrs. Durand Deacon. Doesn't it seem odd that he waited all that time? Yes, agrees Sergeant Lambourne. It does seem odd. On Sunday the 20th of February, Haig again asked Mrs. Lane if she had any news of Mrs. Durand Deacon. There was something about his manner that she couldn't quite put her finger on. Yes, he appeared to be concerned, but somehow it didn't seem genuine. It was almost as if he already knew the answer to the question. By now, Mrs. Lane was getting seriously worried. She told Haig that she intended to go to the police station to report the matter. Haig volunteered to drive her there. The rest, Sergeant Lambourne knows. At about the same time as Sergeant Lambourne is making her inquiries, John George Haig is sitting up in his room, writing a letter to his parents. What do you think is the latest excitement? Mrs. D.D. has disappeared, or so it is thought. Nobody knows where she is, and she has not been seen since Friday when she was going to meet me, but didn't turn up. Of course, she can have gone to some relations somewhere and not told anyone. But because that was unusual of her, it has naturally led to all sorts of wonderful rumours. A spot of scandal is real bread and butter in this place. Haig chuckles. What would his parents say if they knew? that he's writing to them about Mrs. Duran Deacon's disappearance with a pen he took out of her handbag. Back at the station, Sergeant Lambourne finds that Scotland Yard has come through for her. A criminal record sheet with Haig's name on it is waiting on her desk. It makes for interesting reading. Turns out Haig has done time for a string of offences, including obtaining money by false pretenses, forging checks and theft. According to the rap sheet, sentences have ranged from a few months to four years inside. There's no record of violence in his file, but there is enough for Lambourne to take her findings to D.I. Symes. Symes is impressed with what Lambourne's managed to uncover. Her notes from the interviews with Alicia Robbie and Constance Lane are exemplary. He thanks her for her diligent work, but it's a job for the CID now. If Sergeant Lambourne is frustrated at being sidelined, she doesn't let it show. The important thing is that her superiors are taking Mrs. Durand Deacon's disappearance seriously at last, and they're going after Haig. Her work is done. It's time for D.I. Symes and his colleague D.I. Albert Webb to visit the Onslow Courts Hotel. 
A faint waft of cigarette smoke and brill cream greets the two detectives as the door to room 404 opens. A small, dapper man with piercing blue eyes glances from one to the other with a faintly ironic gaze. For some reason, he seems to find their appearance amusing, perhaps because of the disparity in their sizes. He's not the first to notice that Symes is the Oliver Hardy to Webb's Stan Laurel. But he would be wrong to underestimate these two experienced investigators. They meet his smirk with blank, impassive faces. Haig is dressed in a tailored suit, crisp white shirt and silk tie. His shoes are highly polished and his black hair neatly groomed. The only weak spot on his otherwise immaculate appearance is his smudge of a moustache. Symes has the impression Haig is trying to model himself on the film actor Ronald Coleman, but the effect doesn't quite come off. Symes introduces himself and gives the reason for their visit. We're making inquiries with respect to a lady named Mrs. Olivia Durand Deacon, who is missing from this hotel. Haig is all smiles. He invites the detectives in, saying, Yes, I thought you would want to see me, as I went with her friend Mrs. Lane to the police station to report her missing. Let me tell you all I know about it. They begin by asking Haig for a few personal details. He tells them, I'm a married man, but I haven't seen my wife since about 1935. I've lived at the Onslow Court Hotel for the past five years. I'm an engineer and a director of Hurstley Products Limited of Crawley, Sussex, a firm of light engineers. Next, they want to know about his relationship with Mrs. Durand Deacon. He describes it as quite friendly and tells them that she had recently spoke to him about an idea she'd had for a new type of artificial fingernail. She showed me some she had made of paper and glued to her nails. She asked me if I could make something similar which could be sold. On the following Tuesday or Wednesday, I told Mrs. Durand Deacon that I thought I could do something about the fingernails and suggested she come down to the factory at Crawley to show us what she wanted. Then... Haig explains how he had arranged to meet Mrs. Durand Deacon on Friday the 18th, outside the Army and Navy stores, where she had gone to pick up some samples of competitive products. But Haig claims that the last time he actually saw Mrs. Durand Deacon was at the hotel when they were making their arrangements to meet later. He waited for her at the entrance of the Army and Navy stores for over an hour before deciding to go to Crawley on his own. That evening, he ate alone at the ancient Prior's Cafe in Crawley. He claims that he got back to the Onslow Court Hotel at about eight o'clock. He says he looked in at the lounge later to see if Mrs. Lane was there so that he could ask her about Mrs. Durand Deacon, but didn't see her. The rest of his account tallies with what Mrs. Lane had told Sergeant Lamborn. The detectives thank him for his time and head back to the station. They're both in agreement that there's something fishy about Haig. D.I. Symes contacts the Sussex Constabulary to find out more about Haig's engineering factory in Crawley, Hurstley Products. As a result, Detective Sergeant Patrick Heslin is sent round to 15 West Street Crawley 
where the firm is based. Heslin interviews Edward Jones, the managing director, who reveals that Haig only works for Hurstley on a casual basis, as the firm's London representative. These days, he doesn't do much business for them at all, and is paid only on commission. Jones mentions that Haig had access to a storeroom belonging to Hurstley on Leopold Road, where he occasionally works on his own projects. On his way back to the station, D.S. Heslin drives past the place. Surrounded by a high fence, the basic two-storey brick building has a sinister, run-down air to it. When Symes and Webb receive D.S. Heslin's report, one detail jumps out at them. Haig had claimed to be a director of Hurstley Products Limited. That doesn't tally with what Edward Jones says. According to the report, Jones once offered Haig a directorship, but nothing came of it. The matter was dropped. Haig has been caught in a lie. The question is, what else has he lied about? The detectives make another trip to Onslow Court Hotel, this time accompanied by a third officer, Detective Sergeant DuRose. Haig makes a new statement, clarifying a few points. I draw no wages from Hurstley Products, he admits now, although I am a director, he insists. They press Haig on how he manages to make a living, given that his position at Hurstley is unpaid. I buy and sell engineering machinery and tools. He then adds, I also back dogs and horses. I won 50 pounds over Cavalry Major at White City on Saturday and 300 pounds over Black Tarquin last year. D.S. DeRose watches Haig closely as he gives his account. He can't help noticing how the man gulps down abnormal amounts of saliva after each question and how, between questions, his Adam's apple bobs up and down like a yo-yo. DuRose will later describe it as an involuntary physical reaction bred of nervous tension while we were questioning him. To a skilled observer of body language like DuRose, it looks very much like John George Haig is lying. It's Friday the 25th of February, a week to the day since Mrs. Durand Deacon went missing. Haig leaves the hotel after breakfast and drives to Sussex. He calls in at the storeroom in Crawley before running an errand in nearby Horsham. There's a jeweller's there that he has some business with. We can only assume that this flurry of activity is connected to his recent interview with the police. As he returns to the Onslow Court Hotel later in the day, Haig sees a crowd gathered in front of the entrance. He lights a cigarette. Reporters, how exciting. Although there has been considerable press interest in the disappearance of the wealthy widow, so far only the basic facts of the case have been published. The reports have lacked the colorful details that give the story human interest. Haig decides he'll give them what they want. As Haig approaches, the assembled journalists turn 
and run towards him, calling out his name. They must have been tipped off by someone. It's safe to assume that the leak was approved by D.I. Symes. It's clearly a tactic to put pressure on Haig. But Haig is far from perturbed. In fact, he seems to be enjoying the attention. He turns the occasion into an unofficial press conference, fielding questions and even making an impromptu statement. I have no further news on the whereabouts of my friend, Mrs. Olive Durand Deacon. I am just as anxious as you or anyone else is on that score, he tells them. It's all going swimmingly well until someone fires a question at him that he clearly isn't expecting. Actually, it's not so much a question as a statement of fact. I think you ought to know, Mr. Haig, that there are rumors you have a criminal record. Haig is clearly rattled. His amused expression turns into an icy glare of displeasure. Let's skip that. We're talking about Mrs. Durand Deacon. To the seasoned crime reporters, it looks very much like the mask has slipped and a murderer has been revealed. On the following day, Saturday the 26th of February, D.S. Heslin of the Sussex Constabulary returns to take a closer look inside the Leopold Road storeroom used by John Haig. With Edward Jones's permission, D.S. Heslin forces the padlock with an iron bar. Inside, on top of a workbench, Heslin sees a square leather case bearing the initial H. On the floor, in the center of the room, are three large acid carboys. He also finds a stirrup pump, rubber apron, a Macintosh, rubber gloves, and a pair of goggles hanging from a hook in the wall. Whatever Haig has been doing in here, it obviously involves the handling of dangerous chemicals. When he opens the two cases, Heslin finds a number of items, including a 38 Webley revolver and eight rounds of ammunition. He begins to fear the worst for the missing woman. Then, he makes a discovery that suggests this case is bigger than any of them had suspected. He finds passports, identity cards, and ration books belonging to five people. William McSwan, Donald McSwan, Amy McSwan, Dr. Archibald Henderson, and Rosalie Henderson. D.S. Heslin's mind is suddenly reeling with questions. Who are these people? Where are they? Why does Haig have their documents? And what has he done with them? Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, the net closes in on John George Haig. A vital clue is found, and the suspect makes a startling confession. But has he found a loophole in the law that will protect him? He challenges the police to find a body, and shocks them with a gruesome claim. Will he outwit Scotland Yard's finest and escape the hangman's noose? Or will detectives uncover the evidence they need to catch him out? Is Haig an opportunistic con man 
more interested in money than murder? Or a psychopathic serial killer who must be stopped before he kills again? Join us as we look even deeper into the dark and troubling case of the acid bath murderer. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>